Welcome to the Athletic Training Education Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Dougal, with my co-hosts, Lucas Dargo, McCall Christian, and Laos Gardner. We are all second-year students in the Indiana State University Doctorate in Athletic Training Program. everyone, and welcome to our first episode of the Athletic Training Education Podcast. We are really excited to bring our audience informative and thought-provoking topics and materials as it pertains to athletic training education. Our goal is to provide everyone from faculty, administrators, preceptors, and students with up-to-date information on the ever-changing educational landscape, as well as provide a platform to invite many wonderful guests to our show to share their innovative ideas regarding preceptorship, curricular issues, and how to best engage students clinically and in the classroom. So conceptually, as we brainstormed what we wanted this to really be, um, we wanted it to be a platform to help bridge the gap between our athletic training educators, preceptors, clinicians, and students. Um, having a way to address all facets of athletic training education and how we can work together to elevate our profession. With that said, one of the most polarizing topics right now is that of the new set of curricular standards that came out last month. The Commission on Accreditation of Athletic Training Education, or CATI, uh, recently published the new 2020 standards for professional master's degree programs that go into effect officially July 1 of 2020. Over the next two years, professional programs will be making new curricular plans to make sure they meet these new standards. Some of the biggest changes center around uh, standards that address things like clinical immersion, uh, faculty establishing content areas of expertise, personnel and their specific qualifications, and the addition of the Institute of Medicine, or IOM competencies. All of these require careful planning to ensure each program meets the standard, but the bigger overarching objective during this transitional phase from the undergraduate professional program to the professional master's program is the structure of the curriculum itself. Some people in the profession are concerned that some programs will do a name change to the degree, add some new content, and move on with business as usual. This will certainly uh, devalue our profession in the long run. Instead, the recommendation has been that programs scrap what they have done and start new with an entirely new foundation. But for some, this is scary to think about. So our guest today is an excellent person to talk to regarding what some of those building blocks of that foundation look like. She is an expert in athletic training education with a particular interest in educational outcomes. So without further ado, I'll let her introduce herself. I am Kaylee Bacon. I'm an assistant professor um, in the athletic training programs and also an assistant, uh, a research assistant professor uh, in the School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona, um, both at A.T. Still University. Um, some of my 
my main research um, and expertise areas really focus on athletic training education. Um, there's a lot of different avenues to pursue in uh, athletic training education. I think what I'm most interested in is trying to figure out um, how to enhance the educational outcomes um, of our graduates at uh, the various levels, professional, post-professional, residency, um, and doctoral. Um, and then in terms of uh, some methodological uh, expertise areas, um, survey and qualitative research are kind of my passion. Um, and I also um, am a certified expert in Qualtrics, the survey platform. Thank you, Dr. Bacon, for joining us today. As we transition, it is important to briefly discuss the history of athletic training education. Many athletic trainers are excited about the new 2020 KD Education Standards, while others are concerned students will no longer be adequately prepared. In order to understand the critical need for this degree transition, we must first consider the profession's roots. In 1955, William Pinky Newell became the first athletic trainer to be appointed to the position of National Secretary for the National Athletic Trainers Association, a position that subsequently became known as the Executive Director. One of Newell's first significant acts was to appoint a committee on gaining recognition. The first athletic training curriculum model was approved by the NATA in 1959. A decade later, the NATA Professional Education Committee and the NATA Certification Committee developed the first undergraduate athletic training curriculums. The first four athletic training programs in the United States were Indiana State University, Lamar University, Mankato State University, and the University of New Mexico. In 1980, the NATA Board of Directors made a resolution requiring an athletic training curriculum major or equivalent. In the 1990s, the essentials and guidelines for an accredited program for the athletic trainer was approved by the American Medical Association's Council on Medical Education. In 1996, the NATA Board of Directors adopted several recommendations that were submitted by the NATA Education Task Force. These recommendations address the education and professional preparation of certified athletic trainers. Among the recommendations, the Board of Directors instituted a requirement that in order to be eligible for certification, all candidates must possess a baccalaureate degree and successfully completed a commission on accreditation of allied health education programs. This ultimately discontinued the internship route to certification. In recent years, athletic trainers have had the option to obtain certification through the completion of either a baccalaureate or master's level preparation program. Baccalaureate programs may not admit students into the athletic training program after the start of the fall of 2022. Dr. Bacon, what is your vision for how the profession will benefit from the degree transition? That's a great question, and I think one that everyone in our profession is hoping to answer. Um, my hope would be that by elevating the degree to the master's level, we're producing um, clinicians who are more prepared to handle any situation or diverse situations or work with diverse populations. I think just the nature of shifting to the professional masters, students are going to be older. They'll have already experienced um, 
you know, what we would consider an undergraduate education just by having their, their core coursework out of the way. Um, and I also think we're gonna have students who are more committed to being a part of our profession because they, or they have to go to school longer and therefore pay more. Um, so hopefully they're making more informed decisions about this program. Whereas I think currently, you know, for several years we've run into situations where students enter the athletic training degree program thinking that they know what athletic training is um, and they don't. So hopefully, you know, we're producing graduates who are more committed to the profession. We're seeing a lot less um, you know, attrition. We're not losing people to other professions because um, they're passionate about athletic training um, and, and want to help elevate and advance the profession. Dr. Bacon, what do you think are the potential challenges and barriers with the degree elevation? Sure. So I think every benefit I just mentioned is also a challenge. Um, you know, students have to commit to going to school longer before they can even enter the profession and have the opportunity to make money. Um, and with that, it's going to cost more to even be able to enter our profession. Now, I do think that a majority of health professions are shifting in this direction anyway, so we're not alone in terms of the years and time and money it's going to put on the student to be able to become a healthcare professional. Um, you know, and another challenge, um, I think, is still trying to get everyone in the profession on board with why shifting to the professional master's um, is so necessary for you know the successful evolution of our profession. There are so many people who are so resistant to change, no matter what that change is. Um, you know, and I think one of the strategies to overcome that challenge um, is to stop spending our time trying to convince the people who aren't going to be convinced, and really focusing on those who. Um, you know, are ready to, you know, start the race and figure out um, or take advantage of this amazing opportunity to really elevate um, what we're currently doing. Thank you, Lucas. I'm really excited about the degree elevation, especially since I'm someone who serves in a dual role as an athletic trainer and undergraduate instructor. And of course, with degree elevation, scholarship is going to remain a component. So scholarship in clinical practice has been discussed in the literature as far back as the mid-19th century, which means that this concept is obviously not new, but can still be completely unfamiliar to some clinicians. This is why it's important to incorporate scholarship in athletic training, undergraduate and graduate curricula, encouraging evidence-based practice and point-of-care research immediately. I wonder how this integration would look in an athletic training program. Okay. Let's, uh, have a, I'll take you through the continuum. Um, so I think in a professional program, um, concepts related to scholarship, um, you know, I, I view scholarship and research a little bit different because when we think of research, we think of original research, you know, in the scholarship of discovery, but I think there are the other types of scholarship in Boyer's model that could be applied as well. 
Regardless, I think the, the concepts related to research and scholarship need to be introduced right from the get-go. Um, again, we're dealing with a professional master student who has already had core courses. So I think they should be open and ready to learning about these different concepts um, and building on those opportunities as they're going through the program. The primary reason that they should be started right away is I think there's a disconnect if we're not teaching students about research or about scholarship until they get to a particular course or until the end of the program where they have to do some type of thesis or uh, capstone project, we're basically telling them this is something that you have to do as part of the program, but it's not important enough for you to have already been incorporating as you're learning the skills to be a healthcare professional. Um, you know, if we're trying to produce scholarly clinicians, then we need to be teaching them about the concepts of research and scholarship from day one and having that be just as important as learning the foundational concepts of providing care. So with that in mind, we would be producing graduates who already understand and are able to conduct um, you know, scholarly experiences in within their clinical practice. So then when they got to the post-professional um, arena, if they were continuing that route, they would just be furthering um, to enhance their skills, focus on quality improvement initiatives, um, and really continuing to drive the importance and the value scholarship has for our profession. So you think students are better prepared clinically if we start them early? Yeah, so a lot of that kind of touches on that concept of the best way to prepare students is to continue to throw it at them and integrate it in everything that we're teaching them, no matter what. When we're teaching students about particular, um, you know, interventions or treatment strategies for an injury, we should be incorporating, um, you know, concepts of scholarship as a part of that decision making. So as we're talking about, you know, treating lower extremity injuries, we should also be talking about how to identify trends in lower extremity injuries during a season or during the course of the year or whatever setting that they're going to be in. So they can stop just focusing on, well, they shouldn't just be focusing on the injury, they should be focusing on the patient behind the injury, um, or sorry, in front of the injury. Um, but they're also looking at it more globally in the practice setting, um, you know, and focusing on some of the epidemiology measures as well. So in addition to that, I don't think it's something that can just be mentioned once and then you check it off and, you know, okay, well, we incorporated it in this course in our program. So now we're going to assume that they're competent. It needs to be repetitive and it needs to be continued. Um, throughout their entire educational experience. And so how exactly do you think programs should incorporate point-of-care research into their curriculum? You have to have high-quality preceptors who are modeling the practices that you want your students to graduate with. Um, I think it all starts with the preceptor. 
Um, and I think globally as a profession, we don't put enough emphasis on the qualifications that a preceptor should have to even be able to be in the role of mentoring our future clinicians. Um, you know, at some places you have to be an athletic trainer in good standing to be a preceptor. Um, let alone, you know, you don't have to have any education or pedagogical skills. You don't know how, or you don't need to know how to effectively mentor or provide feedback. Um, you know, a lot of schools are just, okay, here's my preceptor. They send a student and they trust the student to learn the majority of their content from the preceptor. And I think that creates that huge gap that I had talked about in the presentation about, you know, what we teach in the classroom and then what is actually happening in clinical practice. So I'm digressing from that question, but going back to how should programs incorporate point of care research, again, I think the concepts need to be introduced in the classroom, but they need to be modeled in the clinical practice setting. The students need to be seeing that the patient information that their preceptor is collecting or that they're collecting is is data and data are powerful and can be then turned um, around to answer the clinical questions or the research questions that we have. Let's talk about point of care research. Point of care research in clinical practice has been described as research conducted while providing care, which has also been described as practice-based research. Point of care research is where bedside findings can bridge the gap between research and clinical practice. This can encourage clinicians subsequently to utilize evidence-based practice to improve patient care. Research has indicated early integration in preclinical education of synthesizing literature, as well as assisting with the conduction of point of care research has improved translatable outcomes in professional clinical practice. If students are expected to participate in scholarly work during their clinical experiences, how will this impact the preceptor-student relationship? Could this lead to a role strain for the preceptor? Ideally, it should strengthen the relationship because again, if we're focusing on quality preceptors, um, they won't view the incorporation of any scholarly work as a role strain because they'll already be doing it themselves. So. To them, all they're doing is modeling to the student how uh, an effective or high-quality healthcare practitioner should be practicing on a daily basis. And then, therefore, they'll be able to exemplify to the student how to take patient information and use it, um, you know, not only to help make informed decisions, but, again, in my utopian world, we would also have preceptors who are actively and regularly engaging in point of care or practice-based research that it's, it's not new to them. I agree. We really need preceptors to get on board with point of care research, especially with the upcoming requirements for an immersive experience, which I am super eager about. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I'm really excited about the immersive experiences and 
I think the nice thing about the way that the standards will be written is it still leaves the door wide open for programs to be really innovative about what that immersive experience looks like. Um, you know, but I think it stems from why we needed this standard in the first place. If you think about the traditional clinical rotation, we're having students go during specific hours of a day that don't truly capture what's happening on a regular basis for an athletic trainer. You know, you can't guarantee that all of the injuries or all of the interventions or treatments or decisions are going to occur from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. every day. Um, so I think by having the immersive experience, we're really allowing the students to get a full sense of um, basically what they're getting into so that when they do graduate, they're more easily able to transition because as it's said, you know, as it's called, they've been immersed into practice um, already. And again, with that, if we're able to train students that point of care research is just a part of what we're doing on a daily basis, then within that immersive experience, they're going to get um, hands-on experience of how you actually embed that into what you're doing um, while providing care for the patients. You know, again, if we're trying, we're trying to include point of care or yeah, point of care research opportunities for students and saying that this should be done in the clinical practice setting. But again, now we're expecting them to get an understanding of how that works within a very specified hour range every day. When they're immersed, they can kind of see the full spectrum of um, how it works in terms of um, staff meetings where there's brainstorming and they're talking about this. I think a lot of times um, our students aren't ever involved in staff meetings and don't even know what to expect um, in them. And from an administrative side, they don't know how to conduct a staff meeting. And then they graduate and they assume these roles. Um, and for some, assume a role where they actually now have to conduct a staff meeting having never even sat in one before. Um, so I think just immersing students in general has so many benefits, but from the point of care research opportunity perspective, they're gonna be able to get a better understanding of how it can fit um, into you know, the daily life of an athletic trainer. You're so right. I mean, personally, none of our students have sat, engaged, or conducted any of our staff meetings. I think it would be beneficial for us to start doing those types of things now before it's actually required. Another thing I think we should start incorporating early is competency-based education, which I know McCall has a passion for. Thank you, Laj. Yeah, I am really excited about some competency-based education theories that are coming out and really starting to incorporate themselves into healthcare education. I think athletic training has a great opportunity in this transition to the master's level program that we start to incorporate new techniques rather than taking our old stuff and moving it into a master's program. Now, I think one of those is moving from summative to formative education. Uh, if you haven't used formative education before, it's more of a student-centered approach that involves feedback sooner than at the end or after a test. It allows for the student to develop a skill and get constructive, focused feedback on that skill and on 
also big concepts rather than uh, take a test and know if you got it right or wrong. When thinking about the transition from summative-based education to formative learning techniques, Dr. Bacon suggests we take action for change. Dr. Bacon, can you explain more in depth about how you imagine the transformation happening? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's really easy to do summative assessment because you provide all of this, uh, this learning content and then at the end, you assess the student and you assess the knowledge. I think the hard part about that is you're putting a lot on the student to comprehend the material and to be proactive that if they're not understanding something, they ask. And if they don't ask, then we assume that they've, they've learned it. Um, and I think that's just a, a poor educational infrastructure. Um, really takes... Um, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of getting in front of a big whiteboard and scrapping everything known and everything done before and literally laying out what do we want the end goal to be and then mapping backwards. Um, and I think when you're trying to switch from summative to formative, mapping what you want the end result to be and then progressing back to the starting point and along the way identifying your formative assessment um, stop points, if you will, um, would be great. And that I'm, you know, I don't want to give the impression that summative assessment doesn't have a place at all, but I think that there needs to be a good balance and or maybe an, an unequal balance with a little bit heavier on the formative side. Formative education is a great foundation for the transition into the new model of athletic training education. So Dr. Bacon, how do you feel that transition to the professional masters will change assessment styles? Yeah, you know, I think it's not so much about the, the degree level, it's the institutional structure. So whether we're talking professional undergraduate, professional masters, post-professional, PhD, the traditional university structure focuses on summative assessments and grade-based performance. Um, if I had my way, we would scrap all that and we would focus on competency-based education where you know, students can't progress until they have demonstrated competence in a, a global area of focus. Um, whether that takes someone a month and takes another student a year, um, we would be functioning in a framework where that's okay. Now there are so many political and institutional hurdles that would have to be jumped over um, to get to that true ideal competency-based education. But I do think that there are ways that programs, um, you know, shifting to the professional masters can take a competency-based education framework and make it work within the time-based structure. The challenge with that then becomes not only is it new for the student, but it's new for the educator. So if you think about it from an educator perspective, um, you know, we grew up learning how to teach and evaluate using summative um, framework. So not only is it new for the student, but it's new for the educator as well. But, you know, 
ideally in a utopian society, everyone should be on board and okay with that because it's exactly what we did with evidence-based practice, right? It was new to the students, but it was new to a lot of the people teaching it as well. So hopefully we can come together and, and figure it out as we go. I've been hearing a lot of buzz about competency-based education. And for my sake, I'm going to refer to it as CBE so I don't stumble over all my words, but CBE is definitely a new concept within the world of athletic training. So can you help us just wrap our minds around what this might look like? Yeah, um, so in an ideal competency-based education model, um, there would be no courses. And that thought is pretty mind-blowing to people when you think about an educator. You know, we're so used to thinking about our workload in terms of, well, I teach this course here and that course, and I'm doing this and that and, you know, et cetera. But if you have no courses, then what do educators do? And essentially, in this framework, you would have educators who are subject matter experts, and they would be responsible for communicating content with a student when they're working within that milestone framework. Um, you know, if you look at the new um, curricular content standards where faculty have to demonstrate expertise in the areas that they're teaching, we are already setting ourselves up to work in that model. Um, but again, institutionally, I don't know an institution currently who would be okay with the fact that we didn't have courses um, because institutionally a course is tied to credits which is tied to dollars um, so it would be figuring out how that works would the financial responsibility be the same or different they charge students a flat rate um, and basically say to complete the program it's gonna cost you X amount of money um, now, if you finish, and I think it's something like you have um, X number of semesters to complete the program. If you don't complete it in that time, then they'll talk about kind of a continuing enrollment fee. Um, but you can complete it using all of those semesters, using two of those semesters, but no matter what, you're paying the same amount of money. It really kind of sounds like CBE is making its way into other healthcare education programs. Are there any examples of CBE out there? And how do you feel it might be a good fit for athletic training? Yeah, there are. There are some great examples. So nursing. So I should say that a, a majority of medical ed education is shifting towards competency-based education. So there aren't necessarily concrete examples of its effectiveness yet, but um, if you're familiar with CBE, um, a, a lot of health profession programs are shifting towards milestones. Um, and we, even in athletic training, there's a group who's working on the athletic training milestones um, you know, which is a great way to kind of fall under that competency-based education framework. Nursing um, is always kind of on the forefront of the allied health professions and, and setting good examples. Um, and then outside of what we would think of, there are some universities who have competency-based education degree programs. Um, I think it's the, the University of Michigan Medical School has a, um, I think it's a master's of health professions education, and it's all competency-based education. Um, 
it, it's really fascinating um, to look at. If you guys um, are interested in, can send me a render. I can send you a link to their web page to kind of check out and see how they um, structure things. Yeah, it sounds like it's definitely doable with some open minds, and there's already professions out there uh, paving the way for what it might look like and making it easier for other professions to adopt it. So do you have any realistic expectations or a vision for the transition to CBE in athletic training? I don't know, if I'm being completely honest. I think there are you know, I'm a full believer of we need to stop convincing people of why we should be doing something and really just, you know, kind of drive the bus with whoever wants to jump on board. Um, I think in the past, regardless of what the topic is, we spend so, let's take evidence-based practice. We've spent so much time um, trying to convince people of the value of EBP. And I'm to the point where I think we need to stop trying to convince the people who don't want to be convinced and start putting our efforts in the people who have already bought in and helping them to achieve higher success. I kind of feel that way with competency-based education too. Um, you know, I, I'm working on a, a small grant project right now to see how I can take the competency-based education framework and build it into one of our courses. Um, so I think starting small um, and just kind of, you know, uh, getting more people to join my tribe of um, that this is the way to go and see where it goes from there. But not everyone's going to buy it. Um, and that's okay. Yeah, I think with any new change, uh, we're going to see a, a lot of pushback from people who aren't willing to change, and that's okay. We can uh, grow, and eventually they'll have to grow with us. So for people who do and are seeking um, a new way of assessment and a new way of building courses, um, what advice might you give to those educators trying to move into more of a formative assessment and a CBE model? Yeah, so, wow, that's going to be a really challenging transition because there's a lot of different pieces that go into it. So I think my first recommendation um, would be to be really open-minded. Uh, you know, we, I think, try to profess to our students that, you know, you need to be open-minded and you need to self-reflect. And before we can even begin transitioning to a true competency-based education model, I think there's going to be a lot of that self-reflection um, and identifying the areas that we are willing to um, change because the competency-based assessment model requires a multimodal and multifaceted approach that I think is a little atypical than what, um, you know, a, a traditional athletic training educator may be used to. So I think, you know, the step from summative to formative is a great place to start, but then you need to also think about um, how can you provide formative assessments on the same competencies from a variety of different avenues. I think you make a good point that it's going to be a really complex transition and that small steps can lead to great change. I also think Educators are what 
is going to forge change in our profession. And if we can go to more of this competency-based model and teach students a wide variety of skills like incorporating point-of-care research, then we can really start to evolve as a profession and as clinicians and really elevate the profession. As a young clinician wanting to get into education, I really like the idea of competency-based education. I think because I was around for this transition into evidence-based practice and the big push for patient-centered care within athletic training. So I feel like I understand some of these transition concepts and could be vital in trying to really grow as educators and grow as the students that we produce to go out into the field. Uh, I really am excited about this and I hope that you learned a little bit and are able to get excited about a new concept that, yes, will be hard and have growing pains, but will ultimately help our profession better establish ourselves as healthcare professionals and really grow into what it is to be an athletic trainer. Okay, so the next segment of our podcast, we're just going to kind of move into a more open discussion. So I'm going to bring in Zach, Laj, and Lucas, and we're going to talk about um, kind of what we got out of this podcast and how we felt like the process really went. Um, For me, uh, I totally agree with Dr. Bacon and the fact that competency-based education is something... um, a bit more radical and that it's going to take some time for people to jump on and really get involved in the process. It's, it's not an easy concept to understand, especially after the long history of summative education that we've had in, um, you know, the collegiate and upper education. But I really think, um, it could really transform the education side of athletic training. And like she said, have people more focused on uh, being, becoming an athletic trainer. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I was really encouraged by kind of her, her focus moving forward. So, uh, you know, talking about um, how, how she wants to take that framework and put it into uh, some of her research to kind of show how this can be successful is is encouraging to me. Uh, but at the same time, uh, like you mentioned, I think it's really important that we temper our expectations as far as how quickly this can happen. Uh, I think all of us in our experiences, we've seen uh, things don't happen quickly. Uh, just generally in, in research, uh, things do not get implemented quickly. Um, so I, I I am encouraged. Um, I, I, I have complete trust in, in Dr. Bacon and uh, others that are going to um, kind of set, um, set their timeline up uh, to, to discover and show everybody how uh, this might look in athletic training education. Yeah, and kind of lead our crusade, right? Mm-hmm. And I agree. I mean, like, even if... I know we know that it's going to take a while to incorporate 
incorporate CBE into our education, right? But then I'm kind of grateful for that because we do want, like she mentioned, high quality preceptors to be involved in that. If you, and and at this point, sometimes we have preceptors who don't actually want to be preceptors, right? And so we do want to get all of our ducks in a row, right? Uh, Correct preceptor training, preceptors who actually want to be preceptors, preceptors who incorporate scholarship and um, practice-based research and point of care stuff into their And so then our students are getting the most out of what they can out of the CBE model or else then it's just kind of hanging out with the preceptor and a little waste of time for our students. Right. And I totally agree with you. And that's to, to go off what you're saying is the fact that we're going to have to um, look at what are the type of students that are going to be going into their uh, athletic training programs now, because we're going to have, a different clientele potentially. And we're also going to have a reduced clientele because like Dr. Bacon was saying about how we're going to now have people that are going to incur even more costs in order to be an athletic trainer. And so it's that, that um, back and forth between do we want to focus on the quality of education? And I think, yes, we do. I think that ultimately, although it costs more now to, to get into the profession or it will when these standards are uh, finally put in place, but it's about making sure that people that go into athletic training, they stay in athletic training. It really looks at the attrition and looks at making sure that they're true scholarly clinicians, right? And we want to make sure that, um, like what you were saying, Laj, is that we want people that are preceptors and they want to be preceptors and then they're going to model these uh, true values that we have as a profession. And so I think that although we're slowly going to be getting those ducks in a row, I I do think that ultimately these barriers will um, slowly come to a conclusion and we'll be able to work through them. I'm, I'm really excited about the future. I think we all are. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, you know, being in education uh, for uh, the good part of uh, now a decade, um, I'm looking forward to, having uh, the, the entry point for our profession be at that graduate level because uh, particularly where I work, uh, we've had a, a large number of our students early on in my career that were really uh, using uh, the profession um, in, in hopes that they would go on to, to something else, where, whether it be chiropractic school or physical therapy. And that's really disheartening. And from an educator standpoint, you can't help but feel uh, defeated when that happens because you want, you want people to be invested as much as you're invested in them. And um, so I am looking forward to the majority of our students moving forward, uh, going into the profession, wanting to elevate the profession. Yeah. Yeah. Zach, I couldn't have said that better myself. Okay, so I think that uh, that wraps up our podcast for today. Um, I'd like to start by, again, thanking uh, Dr. Kaylee Bacon for her wealth of knowledge uh, and taking the time to speak to us about what I think is a really important topic. Um, I want to thank uh, McCall, Laj, Lucas uh, for, again, all of your insight. Um, 
And now I just want to uh, quickly end with um, asking our listeners, uh, continue to interact with us. Uh, we'd love to hear some feedback, uh, additional questions. So please reach out to me on Twitter at ZDougal01. Uh, I'd love to hear some of the feedback on our first podcast. Um, and uh, we, we want to keep this conversation going. So uh, thank you so much to all of our listeners. We look forward to uh, talking about more interesting topics within athletic training education. And uh, we will uh, talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.